So I was going to start this talk with some other perennial questions that perhaps are a little more relevant or uh, interesting than is the sound okay. And that are these questions that I'm sure all of us at some time or another and perhaps even right now are asking, who am I? What does it mean to be a human being? What is this all about? What, what's life about? What's the purpose of life? And why is life like this? I'm sure we've all had these kind of contemplations, you know, sometime in our youth doing Philosophy 101. You know, perhaps it's what even brought us into a spiritual path and practice. And if it didn't do that, then being on a path like this, I'm sure these questions have arisen for you. What, what is this? What is this experience of being human? And, you know, there can be a real sense, I should understand this. You know, what is, what, what is this about self, not self, no self? You know, a good Buddhist doesn't have a self. I've got to get rid of this. You know, how do I actually, you know, become a card-carrying Buddhist? I've got to get rid of this self that I seem to be carrying around. And so it can lead to a lot of confusion about this, this question, this whole area. You know, have you ever had the thought, I... I can't wait to get home and show everyone how selfless I've become. <laughs> or, you know, we, we, we want to be caught between wanting to be a somebody or actually wanting to be a nobody or actually, you know, maybe wanting to be a nobody who is somebody or somebody who's actually a nobody. You know, where do we land with all this? I just actually read in the New Yorker the other day, a quote by T.E. Lawrence, you know, Lawrence of Arabia had quite, you know, such an amazing life. And he said, there was a craving to be famous and a horror of being known to like being known. Craving to be famous, but a horror of being known to want that. And, you know, we can be so caught, conflicted in this whole area because it's confusing and you can ask all the questions you want and no one ever gives a straight answer, do they, to this question. But you can tell that um, this, this whole contemplation is up, is kind of in the zeitgeist, you know, just as meditation's becoming more mainstream, these kind of questions, when The Onion does a parody on it. And for those of you, The Onion is this satirical paper that sort of looks like a newspaper and does these articles about things that, you know, actually, they, these days, as I said in my talk the other, the things you read that are really real, you go, no, can't be true. Well, The Onion, hopefully it isn't true, but they look like news. So this one was entitled... Search for self called off after 38 years. <laughs> Chicago is the, the location. The long-time search for self conducted by area man Andrew Speth was called off this week, he said Monday. I always thought that if I kept searching and exploring, I'd discover who I truly was, said Speth. Well, I looked deep into the innermost recesses of my soul. I plumbed the depths of my subconscious, and you know what I found? An empty, windowless room the size of an aircraft hangar. <laughs> From now on, if anybody needs me, I'll be sprawled out on this couch drinking black cherry soda and watching Law and Order like everyone else. <laughs> Speth said he began his search for himself in the late 70s when in junior high he realized that there had to be more to life than what I could see from my parents' Dundee, Illinois home. The search initially showed great promise with Speth's early discovery of his uncle's old Dawes records and the copy of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Over the next two decades, however, the leads just petered out. Although Speth searched in a wide variety of places, including the I Ching, a tantric sex manual, and a course in chakrology, he uncovered nothing. Seth, Speth was dogged in his pursuit, sacrificing his higher education, bank account, social status, and personal esteem. Despite the rising costs and mounting advers adversity, he vowed he would never give up his search until now. I can't believe how many creative writing courses I've taken, how many expensive sessions with every conceivable type of therapist, he said. All that time, a whole life, wasted on a wild goose chase. <laughs> Since calling off the search, Speth has cancelled his yoga classes, turned in his organic co-op membership card, and withdrawn plans to go do a sweat lodge retreat in Saskatchewan. <laughs> 
On Tuesday afternoon, he loaded books by such diverse authors as Ludwig Wittgenstein, Meister Eckhart, and George Gurdjieff into a box labeled free stuff and left it on the curb. (laughs) Though hardened and haggard from his long search, Beth expressed relief that it was over. Asked if he had any advice for those continuing on their own searches, he said he had just two words of advice, give up. (laughs) Trust me, there's nothing out there for you to find, he said. You're wasting your life. The sooner you realize there's no self to discover, the sooner you can get on with what's really most truly important, celebrity magazines, snack foods, and reality TV shows. (laughs) So... He had one piece of wisdom in there. You know, there's no self to find. But I don't think the Buddha would have thought he was on the right path either before or after he gave up his search. He was not looking in the right places or, more importantly, asking the right questions. Because around all of these kinds of questions, the the Buddha said it wasn't really relevant. Answering these kind of questions wasn't pertinent to what is the main issue for us, which is, again and again, suffering and the end of suffering. I don't know if you remember in, uh, I think it was my last talk, the second talk I gave, where I uh, gave from the suttas a little paragraph excerpt about um, self-view, you know, was I, wasn't I, in the past, in the future, from this sutta in the Majjhima. Well, this sutta goes on to say about this kind of questioning. When he attends unwisely in this way, one of six views arises in him. The view self-exists for me arises in him as true and established, or the view no self-exists for me arises in him as true and established, or the view I perceive self with self arises, or the view I perceive not self with self arises, or the view I perceive self with not self arises, or else he has some such view as this. It is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. But this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and it will endure as long as eternity. This speculative views, bhikkhus, is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. Fettered by the fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is not freed from suffering, I say. The thicket or the wilderness of views. Am I? Am I not? Am I like this? It's permanent. It's not permanent. This is not what the Buddha said was important to answer. So I always emphasize that whenever we're looking at any of the Buddha's teachings, especially if we find some confusion around them, and this can be a common one, is to look at them in this context of suffering and the end of suffering. How do they point to where we get caught, caught in suffering, and how do they point, how does a wise relationship point to the possibility of the end of suffering, of freedom? Again and again, you can see in the suttas how the Buddha wasn't interested in philosophical discussions. People would come and try and debate with him, and he would always kind of cut to the chase of what was really important, this, these two things. Where do we get caught? Where do we get identified? Where do we have wrong view? And how can we actually transform that, come into a place of wisdom? So when talking about these views of self, all of these questions of do I exist or not exist, permanent or not, not permanent, what is it actually like? What he said was more important is see where we identify, see where we cling, see where we get caught in these concepts of self. And that's the most important place to look. And the the framework that he gave for looking in this way at these concepts of self was the framework of the five aggregates or khandhas. And he said, these are the aspects of our experience, of the human experience, that we most commonly form a sense of self around, most commonly identify with 
and cling to. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. The skillful way that the Buddha said we should relate to our experience and the ways that we commonly get caught and um, find ourselves in suffering around this. And hopefully point to how to use the khandhas in your practice, not to make it more complicated. You know, it's not another list that you have to memorize and, and, you know, go through, but really to see that perhaps you're already working a lot with these khandhas, that it's something you already know. So just to give a quick description, there are five khandhas. Um, The first is that of form, Pali word is rupa, and it refers to any form, internal, external, past, present, future. But for us as practitioners, the, most, the one that's the most relevant is the body, that the form of um, our body. The second khanda is feeling tone, vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. The third is perception or sanya, and that's a recognition or knowing Uh, what the arisings at any of the six sense doors and naming that in uh, a conscious or unconscious way. And then the the fourth is um, called mental formations. Sankaras is the Pali word, and it's all of the contents of the mind. Moods, thoughts, emotions, states of mind all fall into this huge basket of um, sankaras, our memories, our conditioning, And the fifth is consciousness, or vijnana. And in this context, and usually in the Buddha's uh, speaking about this, this is just this simple knowing or recognition of what's happening, of what's arising at a sense door, before even we've labeled it. That's perception, does the labeling. This is just the recognition that something has arisen um, before we've labeled it. So as I said, the Buddha's main theme throughout the suttas was always suffering and the end of suffering. So how do we look at the aggregates in this context of suffering and the end of suffering? He considered that the aggregates were essential for us to understand, to find the end of suffering. He actually said, as long as I did not understand the five aggregates in terms of their individual nature, their arising, cessation, and the way to their cessation, I did not claim to have perfect enlightenment. So putting it very central in his teachings. And so he talked about them a huge, in, in, in a huge number of suttas, over 90 suttas, probably more. That was just doing a search that I found that number. The, he's referencing this, the aggregates, talking about them in terms of how we relate to the past, how we relate to the future, how we create identity view, Sakaya Ditti, how it leads to comparing and judgment, how it, how it gets us caught and fixed that things are permanent when they're actually impermanent. He has all these different ways of talking about the aggregates. And they're so central that they're right there as a very important part of the Four Noble Truths, the very definition of the first noble truth includes the aggregates. This is the the standard description of the first noble truth. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So the five aggregates subject to clinging, in brief, that's a shorthand for all of those other forms of suffering. So they're really right there. And this formulation is the one that's most commonly used. The five aggregates subject to clinging. Panch upadana kanda. Panch is five, upadana clinging. Kanda. Uh, the word kanda in Pali, it's skanda in Sanskrit, usually translated as aggregate. So it's that the aggregates are just uh, the, these components of experience, but it's the aggregate subject to clinging that causes the problem. These aggregates are subject to clinging, and we do cling to them, and that's where we get into trouble.
So we've talked about how our meditation practice is a lot about the purpose of it is deconstructing experience, seeing the the component nature of experience or the conditioned nature of experience. When we take things to be solid, it's very easy to then take them to be permanent or take them to be something we can grasp onto, hold onto, control, take them to be self. This deconstruction lets us see that it's actually not that way, that things are made up of all of these different aspects and they're arising and passing ceaselessly and therefore trying to cling to them is inevitably going to bring suffering. And to see that these aren't things even, and we talked this morning a bit about things, but more helpful to see them as processes. Because when we say thing, we tend to again solidify. But even the aggregates are processes that the, they're co- they're, they have causes and conditions that allow them to arise in a certain manifestation, and when those causes and conditions change, they change. So again, not whenever we uh, have this sense of solidity or permanence, to really question that and look a bit more closely. What's actually happening? To see things as process, to see ourselves as process, actually a really skillful way to look. Danasaro Bhikkhu, who's a famous um, Buddhist scholar, he lives down in San Diego, has done a lot of translating, has a really interesting article about the aggregates. And he says this about them, that they're best understood not as objects, but as activities. For an important passage in the Samyutta defines them in terms of their functions. Form, which covers a physical phenomenon of all sorts, both within and without the body, wears down or deforms, that's its nature. Feeling feels pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. Perception labels or identifies objects. Consciousness cognizes the six senses. Of the five khandhas, mental formations is the most complex. Passages in the canon, in the teachings, define it as intention, but it includes a wide variety of of activities such as attention, evaluation, and all of the active processes of the mind. It is also the most fundamental khanda, for its intentional activity underlies the experience of form, feeling, consciousness, etc., in the present moment. So I think it is helpful to see the khandas in this way, again, not as kind of things, globs that we're made of, but rather processes as a something that we do, something that we're participating rather than what we are, especially when we look at at them in this aspect or in relationship to clinging. It's something that we do. Again, not solid or permanent. And instead of a list, you know, now I have to remember the five, there was a seven factors of awakening and I just barely got the hindrances and now here's another list I have to memorize. Not so helpful to think of them as lists, but really more as maps. That's what's a more helpful way. And, you know, when you look at your experience, perhaps you can say, oh, that's, you know, this part of the map. It's not, again, a list to memorize. And it's appointed to a way to practice. When you wake up and connect with experience and can perhaps recognize, oh, here's the Vedna aggregate or the body aggregate manifesting you can see how to practice with it because the pointer is, am I clinging? Am I identifying? And what is it like when we let go? So there's, it's just different doorways that we can have to get closer to the Dhamma, see things through a Dhamma lens. And so I love that in this practice there is this wide variety of techniques and tools and avenues, approaches, we can take to practice. So instead of, you know, that Apple phrase, there's an app for that, it's like there's a practice for that. Wherever you you find yourself, whatever you wake up in, there's a practice for that. There's a skillful way to relate to that. And we can trust our wisdom knowing this, not having to call back into the memory banks, what's this all about, what should I be doing now, but really looking at these fundamental questions. How am I suffering? 
How can I let go? Am I clinging? Am I identifying? Am I taking this to be permanent? And then seeing, seeing if the wisdom is there that it's not permanent. In his time, the Buddha was quite famous, quite well known for using colloquial language in his teachings. As we read the text today, they can sometimes seem a bit stilted because they've gone through, you know, eons of um, passing, being passed down uh, orally for 500 years. And so, you know, they are, you can see how it's helpful for people to have a lot of repetition um, when they were being memorized in that way. But my sense is that when he spoke, he really tried to speak in ways that he thought people could understand because he knew the teachings were challenging. He knew this wasn't easy to understand, so he would deliberately use and take um, common objects or experiences, understandings of the day, and transform them into some new way of um, understanding that served his purpose of teaching. There's this famous line uh, in the suttas where the Buddha instructs his monks to go out and teach in the idiom of the people. That is, teach in a language that people understand in the dialects or the words that, that will be uh, familiar to them. So this word khanda was actually something that was fairly common in the Buddha's time. When we translate it as, as the word aggregate, it's like something that's little technical or weird or unfamiliar. But khanda literally means heap or pile of stuff. We use this word aggregate, and it's kind of like, what does that mean? It sounds very technical because it's a geological term. It means some, you know, some different kinds of rocks that are um, put, pressed together in some way. That's an aggregate. It's an economic term, an aggregate of all these different things. It's just statistics or whatever. Um, and so we don't really have a sense. It's not a word we commonly used. But what's key in the understanding of this is something being formed out of a lot of other things, of something being kind of brought together and forming something larger than the component parts. So in the Buddha's time, they would talk quite commonly about, about a kanda of bricks or a kanda of sticks or twigs or you know, shaft, ch- uh, wheat stalks or something like that. And the, the sense was things that you would pile up and gather together and carry around to construct things with. Also implicit in it is something that's difficult to carry, a little unwieldy, um, burdensome. And this was really brought home, as I said, um, spent the month of December in India, and would often have this experience, you know, going along very slowly in the bus or walking, you know, through villages out in the country, of seeing this object approaching that for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was, this big, round, globby kind of thing. And as it got closer, you'd see these two little legs underneath. Closer still, you would see it would be this huge bundle of, I'm still not exactly quite sure what it was, corn stalks or wheat stalks or rice or something, but somehow they would have gathered it up into this huge thing so you couldn't see the head or the face of the person carrying it and just kind of the torso and the legs going along. That's a kanda. And you really got this, you know, I knew that the Buddha would have seen these sights. Same, you know, even huger would be a bullock cart. You couldn't see the cart. There would be this enormous pile, tens and 20 feet up into there, draping down over the side. You'd see the bullocks, but you couldn't see the cart. They would pile so high. That's a kanda. All of these things stuck together. And you can get a sense too, you know, the Buddha would have known that people would have had these associations. They would have had to really want to and very carefully tie and manipulate and strap and, and knot and, 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 and want this all to stick together and then lug it around. This is the kind, this is what we do with the sense of self. We, we get the glue out and the, the duct tape and we, you know, prop it up and we tie it on and we lug it around. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. But when you look at what that is, it's just all this stuff we've stuck together in some way. And it's all very impermanent, you know, one false move and the whole thing just falls apart. So this is what he was pointing to when he used this word, how we create this thing, this solidity. We do it 
whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, and we carry it around. And his pointing was, see that you do this. See that you create this sense of self and see what a burden it is and what it's like when you let that go. So this is how we can relate to the khandhas. And you'll probably already have a sense that you're already working with two of these, body and mind, mental formations. I mean, this is, you know, a huge field of our meditation practice, working with the body, the experience, the sensations of the body, pleasant and unpleasant. And when we get to see pleasant and unpleasant, there we are, working with the Vedna aggregate. So we're already doing this. But the Buddha got more subtle. He said, you need to look a little deeper than that. You need to look at these aspects of experience in a more subtle way. And so he added this field of consciousness, this bare knowing, to see that's a place we also need to pay attention to, what's happening there, and get, we get caught in. And this is where we can actually shift the awareness a little to awareness of awareness itself, awareness of consciousness. We'll probably do a guided meditation on this in one of these upcoming days. But then he breaks it down into even more this, you know, and really in some ways it's two aspects. There's the body and then the other four are all aspects of mind. But it's really interesting to me that the Buddha thought that these two subtle experiences or aspects of Vedana and perception were important enough to break out and, and name in this way as, as the aggregates. Really get curious about that. So I'll, I'll talk obviously more about each one. But I, you, know, you kind of get to a, t- a place in your practice where you've tried the Buddha's teachings out and they seem to make sense in so many places. We have to trust him on this one. You know, He thought that sanya was important enough to be an aggregate, or Vedana. It's a, Vedana is one of the second, the second foundation of mindfulness. We need to pay attention. When he says this is important, we need to pay attention, is my recommendation. So let's look at each one of these and see what he's pointing to and how we practice with them. The first one is that of rupa, the body. As I said, all matter, internal, external, past, present, future, the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water. These are all the ways that they, the Buddha would talk about the body. And actually, all of the kind of physical senses of the body, um, the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches, are all part of this aggregate of body, of rupa. And... As human beings, it's one of the most um, common places that we identify. You know, if someone says, who are you? What do you do? You point to this. This is me. You probably heard this, you know, little story, Mullah Nasruddin, that Sufi mystic trickster guy, went to the bank to withdraw some money, and the bank says, before we can give you any money, you have to identify yourself. So he picks up a mirror and goes, yep, that's me. And that's, you know, isn't that what we do? Every day we look in the mirror. Yep, that's me. That's me in the mirror there. You know, that's what I look like. And we're talking about the body. That's me. Yet, really take a look at what, how we're relating to it. You know, all of the different ways we relate to the body. It's me. It's mine. We have a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility. But Really, what do we control about the body? Can you control how tall you are or the kind of hair you have or the lack thereof or what it's doing as you're getting older, the size of your feet? You know, I would say a lot of other things, but these days with plastic surgery, there are a lot of things we can uh, interfere with. But the way the body naturally is, we have so little to do with it. Sure, we can, you know, what we eat and exercise can make a difference, things we can do to it. But it's basic nature and structure. We're not responsible for, we didn't choose, yet we have such a feeling of um, burden about it and responsive judgment about it, about what it should look like or what it doesn't look like. I mean, it's really, we obsess over this. And it leads to a lot of distorted views about the body, what the body should look like. 
And, you know, if you listened or see what Hollywood or the fashion world thinks, we'd all be skeletons, you know, with 2% body fat walking around eating lettuce leaves because that's their view of what a body should look like. How many people actually look like that? I mean, it's, I don't know what it is. What is it? Some minuscule proportion actually look like this ideal that gets keep, keeping putting in front of us. And, you know, this mainly has applied to women. The focus has been on it. And, I, you know, I, I must admit to some, it's almost a schadenfreude that, that men are getting, the, the, you know, so getting this now where they have to have six-pack abs and all of this. You know, it's, it's kind of just desserts after a, hundreds of years of women having this ideal put in front so often. See how painful it is to have this artificial view of what we should look like put up in front of us and how painful that is for so many people. I mean, really a source of a lot of suffering. And it's gotten to this extreme now with technology that virtually every image that you see in a magazine has been photoshopped. I mean, it's kind of scary. And then we say, well, why don't I look like that? Why doesn't my skin look like that or my hair look like that? Well, no one's skin and hair looks like that. It's all, in, it's all artificial. It's all fake. And, you know, you can see these, they point out every now and then where they Photoshop and it's like the person doesn't even have an elbow anymore or a hip, you know, they just brush it away. It's not real. And yet this is that ideal that's being put up. It, it's kind of scary what's, what's happening in this uh, arena. And so it really, you know, if we, and it gets in subconsciously, even if we know consciously that, you know, we don't buy into that, to just see it again and again, we have this sense of judgment about what the body looks like. For meditators, I mean, it's it's so irrelevant, this, this view of body. But what is it that we're identifying with? You know, do we own the body? Are we in the body? Is the body me? Where is the self? Is the self in the body? We can get so lost in this and so identified about it. So we really need to look at what we're talking about, what we're, how we're relating to the body when we're looking at it as a meditator. You know, you've probably all heard this reflection or done this reflection yourself. I mean, is this body the same body that you came to the retreat with two weeks ago? So many of you have talked about a pain that you didn't have when you came that you now have or a pain that you used to have that you don't have anymore. You know, so is it the same body or is it different? How there can be a pain that's so real, so powerful in the chest, in the heart, yet you know it's not really physical and it can be there one day and gone the next. Certainly, is it the, is it the same body you had a year ago or five years ago? You know, it it changes so slowly, we don't really notice until we get out a photo, you know, that, you know, we have like on the Spirit Rock website, photos of us, and you're like, I guess that's what I looked like five years ago. I don't look like that anymore. Um, You know, we have to constantly update this view of the body because it's always changing. And of course, that truth we hear, you know, I presume it's true that every seven years, every cell in our body has changed is a different cell. So what is it we're holding on to and making so fixed and permanent? What are we actually clinging to? And to really see this whole area of suffering, it's about a misunderstanding of what the body is and certainly a misunderstanding of what a wise relationship to the body is. We don't own the body. We are not our body. We don't control the body. But we need to have a healthy relationship to this physical manifestation. This body is our vehicle for awakening. As we've said, you know, the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body, and a fathom just means the length of a body, this fathom-long body is everything you need for awakening. So a healthy relationship to the body takes care of the body, appreciates the body, you know, feeds it good food and exercises it and nourishes it and is kind to it. But it doesn't identify. It doesn't make the body a source of happiness. Oh, if my body was this way, I'd be happy. If it was not that way, I'd be happy. If I could get my body to feel this, I'd be happy. It's not me and it's not mine. It's just physical nature. 
manifesting. That's wise relationship. Next of the aggregates is that of Vedana, pleasant is feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We've talked quite a bit about this, and hopefully you've worked uh, with it some in your practice, seeing how when there's pleasant Vedana, if we don't notice it, move to craving, unpleasant, we try to push away, and neutral, we space out, we don't notice, we lose touch, we disconnect. Really important to begin to pay attention to this neutral Vedana. But in the aggregates, the Buddha is talking about something more subtle or a different level of um, understanding or working with Vedana. And that's looking at the way we cling to Vedana, actually cling to this experience of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. We can see this as we see how we orient around our likes and dislikes, how we gravitate to people who share our likes and dislikes and actually create an identity of this group. Are we like this? We like to exercise, or these are our political views, or these are the kinds of activities we like to do. You know, you can see how we do that without even being conscious, consciously aware that that's what we're doing and that it's orienting around Vedana, around what we find pleasant and avoiding what we find unpleasant. All of the different cliques that get, get, get formed, even friendships, are somewhat around this. So the Buddha is saying, look at this. Look at this sense of identity that we build up around this liking and disliking. And what's important to know about Vedna is Vedna is conditioned. It's another thing that arises and passes just like every other conditioned thing. It's not inherent in the object. Something that I find pleasant, you might find extremely unpleasant and vice versa. Vedna is a mental factor. It's not in the object itself. It's how we're relating to the object. We can be so convinced that our perception of something, our perception of the Vedna of something is the truth of things, is the way things are. And it's not. It's really important for us to get this. And it's very related to this next aggregate of sanya or perception. Uh, There was this question this morning about this. It's really interesting to me that the Buddha thought that this very subtle functioning of mind, of perception, which in this context literally and simply means the knowing and naming of things, of bell and clock and cup and floor. This is perception at work. What we do with that, though, is again, like the Vedana, assume that everyone is having the same perception. Now, about physical objects, we can perhaps have some, some sense of a shared uh, uh, perception. But what we don't um, understand most of the time is that we are choose. it's not only what, how we're perceiving something, but what we're perceiving that forms our worldview. And we're actually choosing all the time, usually completely unconsciously, what we're perceiving. And this has a huge impact on our relationship to ourselves and to the world. These choices we're making about what to notice, what to let into our conscious reality. So I'm sure you've noticed this. When you're having a good day of practice, when you're happy, everything seems great. It doesn't matter what the weather is or whatever's happening. Even the most annoying people person can seem kind of cute and endearing on days like that. It's like, oh, they're just being themselves. You know, they can't help it. Oh, you know, so cute. When when you're having a bad day, everyone is irritating. You know, everyone is in your way. Everything is a problem. This is when we're operating in the realm of perception. What we're doing is only noticing those aspects of our experience that feed and support this worldview that we're having. And we're doing this all the time, and we don't notice it. It's so immediate, so instinctive, we don't realize that we're doing it. And it's only when something happens 
that that um, jars that or, or that we see this process that we can see the power of it. You know, just a simple example, I went into a Chinese restaurant a while ago and at the far back table, so it was a little distance away but not that far, there was this huge pile of stuff and I looked at it and I couldn't figure out what it was. And you know what, when that happens, your mind just goes, huh? Like, we're so used to just the synthesis of what we're seeing and knowing stuff. When we see something we don't recognize, the mind just kind of stops and I had to look and look and get closer and see. And finally I saw what it was, was a, a literally about a three foot high. It was a, one of those big round tables that they often, you know, must seat six or eight people. The whole table was full to about three foot high of these really long green beans just all piled up there. And, you know, I just didn't have a concept of what that was. <laughs> and that, but and as soon as I could see, oh, that's what it is. And it all just fell into place, obvious. But we have, we can have that. Um, and it's really important to pay attention because we see how we're creating the world. Here in a, a retreat like this, perhaps, perhaps you've had an experience where when, you know, you do get, have that experience of things quietening down, really settling, stillness in the meditation, mind not moving a lot. A lot. And then you open your eyes and the first thing you notice is just form and color. There's just this essence of things and you see how you create the world out of that. And not only do you create the world, you can feel even the sense of self and how you're relating to that arising out of the naming again. Oh, there, you know, it's not just form and color, it's a bell and it's a person and it's a person I like and a person I don't like. We do that all the time. It's... Oliver Sacks, that, that neurologist um, who, who writes so so brilliantly about uh, people who have different um, p- uh, problems with their mental functioning, whether it's through accidents or, or diseases or whatever, he, ta- he has this great story about a man who was actually born uh, with sight but lost his eyesight at a young age, four or so, then had an operation to restore his sight. And they really thought that what would happen is you know, they would take the bandages off and it would be like, hallelujah, I can see. But it didn't happen that way. All he saw was this confusing mess of shape and color and he couldn't put the world together. As Oliver Sacks says, most of us have no sense of the immensity of what we do when we put the world together, this construction, for we perform it seamlessly, unconsciously, thousands of times every day at a glance. But this was not the case for this man. He never actually quite could put the world together again in the way that we do. We do it, we're so used to doing it. A baby has to learn how to do that. You know when a baby's going, what is, oh, 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 that's me, oh, you know. We learn how to do this and so we do it seamlessly. But this is the functioning, a big part is perception of knowing what these things are out there. So meditation really trains us, it's one of its gifts, to notice how we're doing this, what we're actually perceiving, and then all of the constructions that come out of that. Things can seem clearer and brighter because of this, because of this subtlety of paying attention. So we can really begin to notice perception. And then what's the reactional response to that? Again, are we liking or not liking as we're seeing and tasting and feeling and touching? But starting with this bare knowing of perception. And we start to see that perception is like everything else. It's conditioned, it's impermanent, and we don't control it. It just arises. But once we start to see that, again, there's a whole talk one can do about this, we can start to see we can change our perceptions. We change our perceptions through doing things like metta practice. And someone that was either unknown to us, like the neutral person, or perhaps previously unlovable, like the difficult person, becomes lovable. This is changing perception. 
we can do this, only but only if we notice its manifestation. And particularly we can notice when we're perceiving things that lead to more wholesome mind states and those perceptions that increase unwholesome mind states, increase our tendency to the hindrances. And you can see how you do this. If you pay attention to, I'm not liking this, this is not good, you know, what about this, this is bad. Those kind of perceptions, if you pay attention to those kind of thoughts, down the road of the hindrances. Pay attention to the kind of thoughts that lead to relinquishment or renunciation or generosity. Wholesome mind states come with that. So we really can be more of an active participant in this, but only if we're able to notice that it's manifesting. The next of the aggregates is this whole field of sankharas, mental formations, all of the contents of the mind. We've spoken a lot about this, given whole talks about the hindrances and the factors of awakening and uh, working with difficult emotions. This is all in the field of the, f- the fourth uh, aggregate of mental formations. But from the point of view of the aggregates, the important thing to see is where do we, is this where we identify? Are we clinging to our thoughts, our moods, our emotions? Is this where we actually create the strongest sense of self? And it's a real uh, competition. Do we mostly identify with the body or to the mind? I think it's actually the mind if you really uh, come down to it. But re- this is how we practice with the aggregates. What is this skillful relationship to this, this content? Can we see it as also impermanent? If we cling to it, it will, it'll cause suffering. That we're not in control. That it's arising and passing like everything else. And again, in meditation, those moments of quietness or stillness where the mind isn't filled, with all of this toing and froing that I spoke about the other night, you know, the thinking that we do. Who are you then? You know, if, if we think we're our thoughts and these memories and, 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 and ideas and, and our genius or our stupidity, when the mind really calms down, what is there? You know, really notice those and, and get curious. If we're identifying so much with this, what happens when it all stops, as it does, even if it's just for a moment? You know, so many people have come into interviews, you know, usually say, what's been happening? So much has been, it changes so much. Right, that's what happens. What's the point of clinging or identifying? It's going to change, you know, from one interview to the next, from one moment to the next. And I often will ask, especially if someone's really been stuck in something, while you're in that place of resistance or fear or doubt or anger, could you know its impermanent nature? Could you have a moment of saying, this is impermanent? So many of you said yes. You know, I was really caught, but I knew it was impermanent. I knew it wasn't who I am. It wasn't me. Such wisdom to bring that in to our practice. The last of the aggregates is that of consciousness, vijnana. Again, there are many ways we can use this word kind of loosely, but the specific meaning as an aggregate is just this knowing factor, this ability of a human being, of a mind, to know what's happening, what's arising, at any of the six sense doors. So consciousness can be aware of a thought or a mood or an image or an emotion. can be aware of that as well. In, when we begin to pay attention to this aggregate, what we're doing is this subtle shift, but it's really a very interesting one, where instead of being focused so much on the object, and most of the time in our practice, we're really focused on the object, on my thoughts, on my pain, on my body, on my mood, to, know it, to focusing on or being aware of what's knowing that. 
And this is very subtle. It's not something you, you know you need to figure out or force, but sometimes it just happens naturally. But sometimes you can actually get a little curious about this. What's knowing this can be kind of trippy, you know, to 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 let go of our fixation with the object and be more with the knowing and see just this whole play of stuff arising and passing and this consciousness just there meeting all of these changing objects. But again, as an aggregate, the Buddha is pointing to if we cling, we can suffer, that this is not a place to land. We can get identified here too as the knower, as the one who knows. It's, it's a, less, a lesser kind of clinging or a less stuck kind of clinging, but we can still cling. We need to see this. Consciousness is also conditioned in this mode of understanding. It's arising and passing too. So we need to understand this. Our consciousness is colored by these objects that arise and pass within it. It's not another place to land or get fixed with, but we can know it just like we can know these other arisings. We can know it and we can also see where we cling and if that clinging is leading to suffering. So these are the five aggregates. You know, I know it probably seems quite complicated. You know, the mind can be spinning a little with, what do I do with all this? Really keep it simple. You can only notice what you notice. Giving talks like this is really just, you know, laying out, as I said, a map or perhaps putting words on something that you've intuited but haven't quite yet clarified. But you don't need to figure this out. But really to recognize you're already working with two of them all the time, the mind and the mental formations. What this is adding is a, a, a support or a, a encouragement to see how am I relating to that? Specifically, how am I creating a sense of self out of that? How am I clinging to that? And what might it be like? What would happen if I let go? If there wasn't that clinging or identification? And also an encouragement to continue the practice with Vedana, again, but seeing, are we clinging around that, creating a sense of self or identification? Perception, much more subtle, but if you get interested in it, really quite fascinating. Not something they know that you're always trying to be aware of, but particularly if you notice you're caught in something, something feels really stuck, what are you paying attention to? What is prominent that you're perceiving that's feeding that tendency of mind? And then consciousness. Again, just this, it's a very subtle shift from always sort of going from object to object to object to this awareness itself. Actually letting go, a little less sticky. can be quite interesting. But always pointing to conditioned nature, that if we cling, we're going to suffer. We can let go of the clinging, the identification, and just see it as process, that there's the possibility of freedom, not in the future, but really here and now. This is what these teachings are all about, not some you know, enlightenment experience way off some Im- uh, ideal or imagined state, But right now, as we relate to this human experience, this is what the Buddha is pointing to. And the Buddha, when he was asked point blank by someone, is there a self or isn't there a self? In this sutta, he didn't answer. And he said, if I said one way or the other, I would have caused confusion to this person. What he said is most important is to look and see You know, is how you're relating to this human experience, if you're grasping at it, thinking it's permanent or a source of happiness, if you're doing that, you're going to suffer. Look and see what's actually there. And what he said was, what's there is a constructed thing, that there is nothing solid or separate outside of this flow of experience that you can identify, that you can point to as being me. 
Yes, there's this sense of self. No one is going to deny that. There's this sense of self that's unique to each one of us and is formed by all of our memories and our conditioning. But even if you look at that, what is solid in that? Is there anything permanent in that? And you can see, no, it's always changing. How I relate to it is changing. So it's all about how we look at this experience, and that's what's important. Just aggregates arising and passing. And so we see in those moments when we're not filling our mind with thoughts of me and mine and past and future, what's actually there is just this process, is just this energy moving very much in flux. A little while, guys mentioned that he, he enjoys tennis, so do I. We play tennis and watch tennis. So I read Andre Agassi's biography. And you probably know, because he was quite a famous figure in his day, you know, and he, because he was such an iconoclast, you know, this, had this image, this wild rebel, the long hair, and, you know, these ads where he was really very feisty and funny. And, you know, as a tennis player, he was so confident and aggressive And it was just amazing to read his biography. Everything, everything that I just said about him, this image, it was all untrue. He was insecure. He was frightened. He was going bald. He wore a wig at times because he had this identification as this long-haired, you know, hippie rebel or whatever. Everything that we thought about him was untrue. It was kind of sad. You know what, what the biggest thing was? He hated tennis. <laughs> he hated tennis with a passion. Yet he was so identified with this persona, he was forced into it at an early age, he couldn't let it go. He got married out of this false sense of self that had been created by him, for him, around him. And it was only as he matured that he saw the suffering and he began to let, the, you know, shaved his head and, you know, let people see that he was going bald. He's really become quite an amazing person now, but it was just such a pointing to how we create this self. And there was so much suffering because he was so identified with it. Our practice is to see through that veil of illusion, to not create this sense of self that's permanent or our source of happiness, but to see experience for what it is, to see its nature, and through that clear seeing, to see that there's nothing to cling to, nothing to take hold of as I, me, or mine, that we're in process here, and true seeing is allowing that process. Not, you know, nothing actually changes, I would always think that, you know, when I had an enlightenment experience, you know, be like the bolt of lightning and something fixed and solid and kind of yucky, you know, there at the center would disappear. And now I see it's not like that at all, but just that this sense of self arises all the time in relationship, in response to my experience. And if I cling to it about, you know, I'm like this and I'm not like that and I should be more like this, I'm going to suffer. But if I can see that it's all in process and that if I can bring wisdom to this experience, there's less contraction, there's less fear, and there's more presence. There's not so much suffering. And that I have that opportunity moment after moment after moment. This is what the Buddha is pointing to in this teaching of the five aggregates, that there's this possibility through in this moment, how we're relating with clear seeing that there is suffering, but there's an end to suffering through this clear seeing. So let's just take a moment to let the words kind of settle.
Thank you for your attention. Time to take your aggregates out for a walk.